When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Forever. Dog. Comic books, comic time. Writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's read. And take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary. Spinning a winning Oh, hello, and welcome to Comic Book Commentary with B. Dave Walters. Nice to see you. How you doing? Tip your servers. Uh, that is not at all, at all, how I'm going to do this whole thing. Uh, but there's no guarantee that I'm not going to do it, do it more like that. Even I don't know. What's about to happen? I have been invited in by the good people at Forever Dog to discuss the process of Dungeons and Dragons: A Darkened Wish. Uh, Tess Fowler, my my artist and partner in crime, was supposed to be here today, but she actually finished the book today. I will not reveal to you when this was recorded, but I decided we decided that she had thankfully earned a rest. So thank you, Tess. Uh, I hope you are somewhere drinking a lot and then sleeping a lot because. That that woman is a machine, by the way. She will never tell you this. Uh, we work the craziest hours. If you're ever on Twitter at like 2 or 3 in the morning, you can often see us on talking to each other, because that is the main time when we were connecting about this, because we're kind of innately these vampiric night owls. But like, she got food poisoning and worked through it until she physically couldn't. Her husband had to drag her to the emergency room, got treated, came back, and went back to work. She is so hardcore. Uh, so I simultaneously thank her and apologize for having inflicted the script on her that I did. Um, hashtag sorry, not sorry, because when you see what she's created, she is going to win all the awards for her art and the things she's done. And it is truly something really, truly incredible. Um, to talk about the process of this, it's weird because I am such a fiend for the writing process and structure and like what goes into it. And simultaneously, I'm still just nerding out about the fact that this is something I even get to do, which is wild. Uh, the first story I ever wrote was a short story that I submitted to Dragon Magazine, and I was maybe like 10 when I did it, and it was objectively awful. Like, it's what I remember of it, like it was terrible. Like, I'm sure when they got it, first of all, I'm old enough that I mailed it in, and I mailed it in written on notebook paper, which I think is really all you need to know about this story. And I'm sure the person that opened it up was probably like, this is adorable, and also terrible, but also adorable. Uh, so, <laughs> to actually be back now to be like, ha, I am writing Dungeons and Dragons stories uh, is great. So the lesson there is uh, don't give up on your dreams, kids. Just try to be less bad every time you try to do it. And then uh, one day it's going to happen. Um, I've shared uh, on Twitter like some of the process of this. By the way, you should follow me and you should follow Tess. She's at Tess Fowler. I'm at B. Dave Walters. We share all sorts of amazing delightfulness and we banter with each other publicly, which everyone seems to enjoy. Uh, but the, the way this whole thing happened was I wrote a digital comic with a friend of mine here. Um, our kids are actually in school together. That's how we met in the first place. I wrote a, a comic called Electropunk with my friend Jeff Womister, who was a director of the Guardians of the Galaxy TV show for Marvel. And so he's an incredibly gifted artist. And we kind of got together and collaborated and created Electropunk, which is really good. And you should read it because some of it is out in the wild. I'll tell you in advance, it is not finished because life got crazy and took over. But I want to come back to it. That's my white whale is finishing Electropunk. But in the process of working with him, another friend of his 
a guy named Jarl Jensen wanted to write. Uh, he did write a nonfiction book, and he wanted it adapted to a comic book. So Jeff connected the two of us together, and I took that on, and I wrote this. I turned this novel into a ten-issue series uh, called The Money Cartel, which should still be seeing the light of day somehow, some way this year. And I was looking for an artist for the book, and I knew Tess from around the Critical Role community and from online. So I hit her up, and I was like, hey, I need an artist to do this thing. And she read the script, and she's like, I really like the story, but it's not my thing at all. Like, I write fantasy. I write monsters. If it turns out the evil banking syndicate are secretly werewolves, hit me up. Otherwise, it's just not my jam. And I was like, cool, I can accept that. And... um didn't really think much more about it. And then about six months pass, and she messages me out of the blue, and she's like, hey, would you like to write a D&D book? And I literally said, stop right there, I'm in. Like, this was the, this was the extent of the exchange. Would you like to write a D&D book? Stop right there, I'm in. And I later told her, and I tell you now, uh, in the face of gods and men, the day that you're like, hey, would you like to do this super dope thing that you've always dreamed of? And I'm like, Mwah. Go ahead and stake me and leave me out in the sun, because it is not me. It is an evil duplicate. It is some cruel simulacrum of me that is masquerading in my life and apparently doesn't like dopeness. So, the me you knew is already dead. Do me this favor. Uh, so, we talked within that very first conversation. We had nailed down the bones of the story and what we wanted to do. Just kind of spitballing some things that I thought would be rad. Because uh, I did a streaming show earlier this year called uh, Theogony of Kairos, which is up on YouTube. We had a fairly short run. I wished I could have done more. I'm going to get to do more. I'll, I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, but that particular story, I wanted to be a very sweeping and grand epic because I think that's the part of D&D that usually gets overlooked. I think... Um, most groups never make it to the end game because it takes a couple of years of constant play. And I think people kind of had this misconception that like, oh, well, the game ends. But I can also understand why well, you've played something for three or four years and everything's turned into rocket tag and you're ready to do something else and groups fall apart. And it's just it's 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 an aspect of the game that very few people get to experience. So for Theogony and Kairos, that story started at level 20 and with Dungeons and Dragons A Darkened Wish, what we see is it is a generational story. We see these characters over many years from, even though we don't nail it down exactly, I know exactly, but we see them from when they're roughly teenagers to when they're roughly in their 40s. So, like decades pass over the course of the story. And we see them go from, you know, fresh recruits basically trying to make their way out into the world into these like stalwart hardened warriors that are coming out of retirement to save the world one last time and that is actually how i pitched it to tess originally with these legendary heroes coming out of retirement to save the world one last time I'll tell you something here that uh, I have not revealed in many places, but it is true. Uh, part of the reason why I was able to come up with these characters so quickly is a lot of them were characters I'd come up with some years ago as World of Warcraft fan fiction, believe it or not. So, um, obviously, they had to change quite a bit to to fit into the D&D world, but at least like roughly who they were and roughly the what they were to each other was something I knew kind of off the top of my head. Some of the characters I created fresh for this one, I'm not going to tell you which was which, because hopefully it will be all organic and seamless, and you won't know who are the characters I've known for years and who are the characters that were born very recently. Um, but there's an important lesson there that I, that I want to point out. A lot of people talk to me about how do you get into this? How do you do it? Remember two things. Tess was on my radar because of Critical Role fan fiction. Uh, I was able to write this story based off of World of Warcraft fan fiction. So there's nothing wrong or bad about honing your craft in that way. And like police sirens are off in the distance. They're like Watsy sending people here to be like, he said it was wow fan fiction. Get him out of there. It's going to turn into a scene from the professional here. Like I'm going to push over the bookcase in front of the door to finish this, uh, this interview. Um, but it, do what you can do to hone your craft, but do what you can do to hone your craft in a way that you enjoy in a way that you love. Um, and don't be afraid to turn down something that is not necessarily in your best interest. Because recall, the first thing I talked to Tess about, she said no. And quite frankly, if we'd been tied up doing that, we might not have even been available to do the D&D book. So, be clear on what you want to do, but create things, create what you can now, and don't hide it. Don't be afraid to share it with people. Don't be afraid to shine your light and tell your stories and create your art. Because whether or not you think it's quote-unquote perfect, it's yours. Um 
perfectionism is probably the worst habit you can form uh, because perfection is the lowest standard you can possibly ascribe to or aspire to, sorry, because it is innately not possible. So you're setting out in advance to say you want to do a thing that you know you can't, and therefore you're setting out to say I'm definitely going to fail, and therefore you're setting out to embark upon a waste of time versus saying I'm just going to make something that I love and put it out there and continue trying to improve. So, there is no small projects, is what I'm saying there. And meet people, connect, because it is important. Which leads me to the next stage of this narrative. So, Tess was sold immediately. Tess goes to IDW and says, I want this guy to write the book. I have no major comic book publication credits. Even Electropunk was indie, and Electropunk didn't get done. And then I've written these other scripts, but they hadn't been published. So, IDW was understandably somewhat skeptical. So, that was when as the proud Sith American that I am, I turned to the dark side and tapped into all the people that I know at Watsi. Because of the streaming and because of my participation in that community, I know everyone over there. So, I circled around to them and I was like, oh, hey, y'all, I have this story I want to do. And I also want to do a streaming series that is going to tie in with the book so we can make this an entire transmedia experience where the fans can interact with these characters on multiple, multiple levels. And I even went so far as to show them how we could tie it in into next summer's big event, like we did Stream of Many Eyes last year. So I completely convinced Watsi and had all of them on my side long before IDW was convinced. But it was one of those things where it's like I asked mom and dad simultaneously and pitted them against each other, and it just sort of worked out. <laughs> but now I have contracts and they can't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also, I'd like to think that uh, you know I wrote the hotness, and so everybody should still be pretty satisfied. But same thing. Another lesson. That was from networking. That was because I'd taken the time to get to know these people and become friends with people. And just as a side note, I think a lot of times people think things like networking and stuff like that are dirty words. Um, they're not. The difference is when you are getting to know someone expressly in a predatory way, expressly in a way where you're like, I want to know you because of what I need, what I can get from you. Well, that's gross. And that makes you gross. And you shouldn't be like that. But when you're saying, I want to get to know you because I respect you and appreciate you and the things that you create and put into the world, and I want to help hype you and broadcast the things you do because I enjoy what you create and I want the world to create it also, well, that's good. Again, if you follow me, especially on Twitter, to a lesser extent, Instagram and Facebook, but definitely on Twitter, because that's where I am most of the time now, I'm hyping people constantly. I'm retweeting stories, I'm retweeting posts, I'm big upping things people are doing, other podcasts, because it's hard out there, man. And it's difficult to to get a little bit of attention. But by the same token, this is not just the greatest time in history to be a creator. Honestly, this is the greatest time in history to be alive. I've gone on record many times saying that. Uh, nobody anywhere ever has had it easier than we've got it. And even though, in many ways, we're still living in the darkest timeline, uh, a lot of the stuff that we see in here now is just because the world is so hyper interconnected. It might seem like everything is so terrible everywhere. Well, it used to be a lot worse. There was just no mass communication. And I'm old enough to remember when there wasn't an internet. Like, I'm like, back in my day, there was no internet. You had to go down to the local comic shop to play the Dungeons and Dragons. Had to, had to calculate Thacko by hand. My, my wizard had six hit points. Um, all of those things are true, by the way. So, um, but recently, I'd say, you know, as little as 10 years ago, definitely within 20 years ago, there was, mm, we'll call it 35 people total in the entire world that you had to get one of them to sign off on you and what you do or your aspirations were not going to happen. Like if you didn't get one of a few people at the handful of labels or one of the few people at the handful of studios that signed off on you as an actor or an actress, then it just wasn't going to happen. That's not true anymore. You don't need anyone's permission to shine your light and tell your story and do your thing. The hard part now, though, is being heard over the noise. Uh, the joy is you can find your tribe, you can find your community, and really you only need about a thousand loyal fans uh, to make your dream come true and sustain you as a full-time creator. There's a whole write-up about this. If you Google a thousand loyal fans, you can read it. Um, in the process of my 
stream of thought ramble, I might come back to it and say more about it later. But even so, the strategy of a thousand loyal fans is absolutely true. So don't think that you have to just have this reach of millions and millions and millions to be able to put food on the table and put a roof over your head creating, which again was not true in the very recent past. So don't underestimate the power of that. Now, once I'd convinced Watsi and once I'd convinced IDW, I set about the process of doing this. Now, I actually just made a post very recently, again, I'm not going to tell you when I recorded this, about uh, my writing process and how I do what I do. I actually got interviewed for a student that was doing a project in college, and they were writing a paper based off of my interviewing me, which is a mind freak in and of itself. Next stop, honorary degree, baby. I don't even care what, what college it's from. Like Wherever you are, if you're listening, if you're like a community college in Kentucky or whatever, and you want to hook me up with an honorary degree and want me to come talk to the class, I will do it. Because um, I actually taught. Uh, at a small college. I taught business, though, um, because that was mainly my background, even though I've been writing since as long as I can remember and telling stories and creating for as long as I can remember. Most of my path was in the business world and create in marketing and creating content in that arena to move people to action. So that's how I've been applying my skills. Being able to sustain myself solely as a creative person has been fairly recent. Uh, I think I said this, what I've been writing, I've been writing period for, we'll call it 30 years. I've been seriously saying that I wanted to be a writer for about 20 years. I've been in LA for about 15 and I've actively been creating content in the public space for about 10. And it was really just this year that a lot of it kicked in. I sold three screenplays and 13 comic scripts and was on, I think I was main cast on, I think five streaming shows all this year. Um, But all of that stuff was a direct result of all of the hustle that I've been putting in before and the seeds that have been planted and watered and relationships that were cultivated before. So understand that it is going to take time before your moment arrives. But as long as you're working from a place of love and contribution and enjoying the process, as long as you stay in motion, your day will arrive. I really need to reiterate to you, anything I have done, you can do. Anything anyone has done, you can do. Uh, Because if you have seen it happen, it's possible. And if you haven't seen it happen, it doesn't mean it's not possible. But if you've seen it happen, it's definitely possible. So don't be afraid to think, um, you know, I could never DM like Matt Mercer. I could never write like B. Dave Walters or I could never draw like Tess Fowler. Well, no, honestly, well, you can't. No, you can't be Mercer and you can't be Tess and you can't be me, but you can be you and no one else is you. So lean into that. No one else is you. And that is your power. So, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked on my sidetracks here. But this is what it's like inside my head. It's like a vaguely swirling maelstrom of positivity, honestly. Which is funny. Like, people talk about like self doubt and imposter syndrome and stuff like that. Man, I don't have any of that. Like, <laughs> whatever version of like para- positive paranoia it is that forces are conspiring to my greater good. Um, you know, <laughs> that's just the, the space I occupy. It's just who I am as a person. So, uh, Back to saying that what I was talking about, like structure in the process. So the student was uh, interviewing me about uh, how it is that I do what I do. And one of the things they asked me was the difference in the different sorts of uh, formats. Like, is it different writing novels or scripts or uh, TV scripts or film scripts or comic book scripts? Or, you know, what's the difference and what, what I recommend to creators in those spaces? And for me... The actual process of telling the story is the same. My actual writing process is the same. And if I can impart anything on you from a technical standpoint, and this somewhat applies to how Tess approaches her art, is structure. Uh, Become a high priest of structure. When you understand how to assemble a narrative and what the bones of it need to be, then telling the story is actually very easy. Um, The book I recommend most is called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. It's a a book about screenwriting, but it is the most practical storytelling advice I've ever come across in any capacity. I use it literally every single day. Second to that is probably Story by Robert McKee, um, which is also a a slightly higher level, but um, still very good points. 
I've kind of gotten to the point that I have sort of my own system of structure that, that I use, but find one and adapt it and live by it. Um, part of the reason why I go on my rant about why George R.R. R. Martin is dead to me, and he is, is because Game of Thrones came out. I read Game of Thrones in 1997, and it's not finished. Like, that's inexcusable. And and he doesn't plan. He doesn't outline. He doesn't do anything. And he sits down, and then he writes for 500 pages, and is in a corner, and has to start over again. That would have to happen to me exactly once, before I was like, never again. It is a waste of time. It is a waste of energy. And when people think, like, planning out a narrative makes it where I don't know, that you can't be surprised anymore. Well, I'll say two things. One, the ideas are surprising when you think of them to outline them. When you're like, oh, word, it was Colonel Mustard in the library. Duh. That's surprising. And also, I give you permission that when you're doing the narrative, when you're actually writing the story, when you get to the point that it's supposed to be Colonel Mustard, if you've done your job properly, there's plenty of times where your characters will surprise you. There's plenty of times where what you planned when you get there organically won't feel right anymore. And of course, you can change it. Uh, Of course, you can decide it was not, in fact, Colonel Mustard or he chooses to spare them at the last second or whatever. Like you have all these opportunities to continue altering as the narrative is playing out practically, but you got to get it out of your head and onto the paper. And having a roadmap is the easiest possible way to do that. So learn about structure. Uh, Tess is the same thing. When we put the book together, I gave her the script. Uh, I let her read the script first and just make sure that it all made sense to her, that she was getting out of it what she wanted. Uh, I know this has been a dream project of hers just as much as it's been a dream project of mine. So I asked in advance, I was like, what are the things that you want? So I can make sure that they are all in this book. And they are. Um, the The fact that uh, the Kenku, uh, Salivagant, is in the book was her request. She wanted to be able to draw a Kenku. Um, um, there's a couple of big sweeping like panoramic shots. Like for the most part, if there's any shots in the book where there's no words whatsoever, I probably did that as a, a head tip to test. It's not always. There's a couple of times where there's no words just because I wanted the images to breathe and communicate what they needed to communicate. But that's probably your biggest sign as an Easter egg that uh, it was for Tess. Um, but she goes through and she creates thumbnails of the entire book, like little like stick figure layouts. Like these are roughly going to be the panels. These are roughly going to be the places. This is roughly going to be what happens. Everybody looks at it, signs off on it. Then she goes through and she does all the pencils. Then she goes through and does all the inks. Then we pass it on to the colorist. But the same thing is she's in her own way. She's still outlining. She doesn't just sit down page one, issue one and start like chopping away at something and then realize later that she can't use it and has to come back and read do it. So, the more efficient you can become with that sort of thing to begin with, the easier your life's going to be, because then you can punch out things very quickly. Because I do these things, I don't just do them well, and I mean, it's not just me, I, I, this is feedback I get, this is just me tooting my own horn, although I think you know I would. Uh, but I do them not just well, but I do them fast. People are surprised how quickly I turn things around, and that's why. Because the heavy lifting is in the outlining and the planning phase. Once you have the map, taking the trip is easy. Um, I will tell you, for me, though, my biggest obstacle and where I have a block is uh, the hardest part is always starting. And I don't mean starting the entire project. I mean, when it's time for that day to sit down and put your fingers on the keyboard and ignore Twitter and ignore Facebook and ignore YouTube and the cats and the phone and everything else and actually go to work. Uh, For me, once the faucet's on, it's on and I'm good. Like, I will go until I'm falling asleep at the keyboard. Um, In fact, basic part of my process is when I sit down to write, I always go back over the last two or three pages and read through those because when I start getting sleepy, I start making uh, spelling mistakes and stuff and things don't make as much sense as I thought they did. So I sort of back up, I edit, and I kind of understand where I was going and what I was trying to say, and then I take off again. Um, I mean, and the way around that, I, I hate to say I do better when I have an internally imposed deadline. Like, I perform much better in that way. Like, if you told me right now I had to have 50 pages by Sunday, you'd have 50 pages by Sunday. Well, especially if the price was right, you'd have 50 pages by Sunday. Um, Will I write 50 pages of my own stuff just for me by Sunday? Possibly. Let's be honest, probably not. Uh, that's just the, you know, the, how, how I work. Um, I'm not going to lie to you here. You're taking the time to listen to me. I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. But back to this, to, to this specific project. Um, once I had the concept and I'd sold them on the concept, believe it or not, the first things that happened is uh, we agreed, Tess and I agreed, that we really wanted this to be like a hardcore and intense sweeping epic is what we wanted this story to be. It is way more Lord of the Rings than it was the Saturday morning cartoon uh, because I wanted to portray the power and the heroism and the villainy of these characters and what's just possible in Dungeons and Dragons. I think when you've got people that can stop time and call down swarms of meteors from the sky and raise the dead and things like that, like that's a big deal. If you really think about it, that is a big deal. But it's very easy to get um, glossed over and ignored in the framework of a lot of these narratives. And so I wanted to be able to show them as people that really are able to make an impact and be at cause in their world, which is honestly why I think people play role-playing games in the first place, especially tabletop role-playing games. And this transcends genre because in life, it a lot of times is very difficult to feel like you're having an impact and you make a difference and that you've got a situation that you can physically, materially impact. And I think that's why we love superheroes so much, because they do something about it. Whether they succeed or whether they fail, they take action and they make an impact. And as a player, you get to experience that from your character standpoint. And as a dungeon master, I wrote a whole thread about what makes a good DM. You can Google it. Be Dave Walters, what makes a good DM. But one of the things I said is make sure you're giving your characters those opportunities to make an impact, to feel like they're being at cause in something, uh, good or bad, good or bad, because they could be terrible. They could be the villains. They could be the ones that destroy the world, but they're the ones that are having an impact on it. The worst thing you can do is have characters that don't matter or put them in situations that don't matter. So, in this story, we wrote it as this big sweeping epic. In fact, I'll tell you, the opening of the book, hopefully you've seen the book by now when you're listening to this. If not, come back and join old Uncle Dave by the fire with the book on your lap and we'll look through it in the warm glow of your iPad and comiXology. Uh, although, I will say, if you can, buy hard copies at your local comic shop because uh, we got to help support the, the, the local people. But, you know, comiXology is dope, too, especially if you don't live near a local shop. Uh, and if you want to be a true homie, buy the alternate covers of each one. You know, I love you. Uh, so the book is five issues, and it opens up with this sweeping battle, this huge epic where we see a handful of our characters take on an entire army and basically wreck face for the first two or three issues, uh, two or three episodes. Uh, now I can't say words anymore. Two or three frames, um, and. A lot of it, again, there's no dialogue in it because I wanted to just really make it just like viscerally apparent what they were doing. And like the explosions are going off and people are flying all over the place and things like that. And we were so sure that it wasn't going to get their approvals because we got to go through two levels of approvals. We have to get past IDW's approval and Wizards of the Coast through Watsi's approvals. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of chiefs uh, involved in, in this thing. I mean, most of the creative stuff is just... Uh, me and Tess, but then a lot of other people got to green stamp it before it can happen. And in and, and all of the major big things we wanted all happened. I had to drop out a lot of characters I intended to include, and I was like, jokes on you, I'll put them back in the stream. But um, I, I didn't get the title that I wanted originally. I'm not going to tell you what the title was in case I get to use it sometime down the road. I didn't get the title I wanted. I had to leave some characters out. I had to really, really fight for the inclusion of some characters, which I will reveal that to you when the story's done, and you will realize how vital each and every one of them was. But I really had to fight to keep them in. Uh, but a lot of the the intensity of it, we got to keep. We really did. There was a strange, like, their hangups about some things was, like, really odd and random to me. Uh, like, our character, uh, Salivagant, again, the bard, um, he's a Kenku. He basically serves the function in the narrative of Hermes. He's a messenger. Um, he shows up when they need him or when, when, uh, you know, the, the narrative needs like to go in a different direction as the voice of the gods. And then he hangs around for a little while and then he leaves. You know, that's what he does. But 
I wanted him to be able to fly because that was vital for him to do that. But as you might know, in D&D lore, Kenku don't fly. Uh, in fact, not only do Kenku not fly, they're, if you're if you're not intimately familiar with, with D&D, Kenku are basically crow people. Uh, they look like crows, but they got like hands and feet. And they've lost their wings, and they can't fly, and it's so terrible. And wah, wah, wah. And that's the lamentation of the Kenku. Except they live in the world where there's like mad ways to be able to fly. Like, it's nothing. You know, like in this world, being like, I lost my wings, that would be tragic. In D&D... Not so much. So, I originally wanted him to have a cloak of the bat, which is an item that exists where he would like bat wings would come out and he could fly. And they were just adamant that like, nope, can't do it. No, no, no. And I was like, well, he's got to fly. So how we do. And they came back and they were like, well, he can't have that magic item, but he can have this magic item that will let him fly. And I was like, well, let me save all of us some time and we'll give him the magic boots. Uh, okay. Um, to this day, I can't tell you why that was such a hard no, but it was like, we probably fought more about that than anything else. So go figure. But the actual approval process has been relatively painless. I would knock on wood, but it's going to be too loud. I haven't got all the scripts approved. So I might be telling a very different story down the road where I could be like, man, they made me change it into like a Midsummer Night's Dream where somebody woke up at the end or something. But as of now, so far, it's been pretty painless. And I think a lot of that also has been some of the reaction we've seen from the, from the art that's being released and the characters that are being released. Uh, I very much created all of these characters to be a very diverse and uh, representative body of people. I knew I wanted my main protagonist, Helene, to, uh, to be a woman. Um, she, You learn very quickly that this story is mainly about her transition from this really sweet, innocent, fun girl into this very dark and powerful and headstrong wizard that's essentially consumed with revenge. Um, in many ways, she becomes a dark vigilante. Like her her trajectory is not so different from like the crow. And I wanted to be able to show not just a strong female character, but also wanted to be able to show a flawed female character that didn't require her to be like an emotional basket case or be unable to cope and constantly be needing to be rescued by someone else. She's not that at all. She becomes a person that kind of fireballs first and, and, and asks questions second, which I really enjoy and, and you don't often get to see. And uh, we made Xander, who uh, he looks basically Polynesian. The story is set in the Moonshay Isles. I'll come back to why it's set in the Moonshay Isles. But we were like, well, if they're Islanders, he should look like an Islander. So he's kind of like uh, based not insignificantly on Jason Momoa. <laughs> I will tell you this. When we announced the cast of the stream... Um, and where it's all going to happen. A lot of these characters were written with the people that I knew were going to play them in mind. In mind, So there's a lot of little nods to the human beings that they are, are in the characters and in their character designs. So if you pay very close attention and you were like, they've got the same eye color as the person that is playing them, that was probably intentional. And by probably, I mean definitely. Um, so Xander looks Polynesian. Uh, the twins, uh, Karn and Karen, we made non-binary. Um, when I was originally explaining to, uh, some friends of mine, how this was going to work. One of their very first questions was, well, can the twins be non-binary? And I was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? Uh, because I'd originally written Karin and Karen to just be very different. Um, I think you're really going to love them. I think that the fans are really going to enjoy the two of them because I've always really enjoyed the two of them. Uh, it was Tess's idea to make them people of color. Because I originally wrote them as the very wafy trans, uh, trans, not translucent, um, I've said too many words in a row and I'm running out of my, my, my store of them. But, uh, very waifish, you know, blonde, platinum blonde hair, very thin, uh, you know, elven people. And she was the one that wanted to make them people of color and basically give them uh, like little Afro mohawks. And I was like, absolutely yes. Um, and there's a uh, Rayonde, the Dragonborn. Uh, he is a red dragon, Dragonborn, um, which is just dope. Uh, he is basically, he's a monk. He's basically the Obi-Wan of the group. Uh, there's Aiden, who's an ASMR rogue, who is basically the Han Solo of the group. Um, and it, he is 
It's funny because uh, Rayonde and Aiden's backstories are both very similar. They're both basically like outcasts and orphans, but they become very different people because of that and make very different choices about the world and their place in it because of that. And Aiden actually is a fallen Asimar, not because he's a bad person, but because nobody ever has been there to teach him what he is or what he's supposed to do. And in the process of essentially surviving, he's essentially ended up going down the dark path um, just as a rogue doing what he had to do to like make it through the world. Um, so he's my main disaster child. And one thing that my experience streaming, especially on Vampire the Masquerade, LA by Night, is the internet loves disaster children. So people are really going to love Aiden. Um, there's living in the king. There's a uh, Nikto who is a tabaxi. Um, she is uh, the captain of the ship that they're on. Um, I don't want to say too much, and just in case you haven't read issue one, eh, this isn't a big spoiler. They end up being uh, mercenaries. That's what the characters are. So that's why they're going all over the world because they work for the white sales company. So their adventures are essentially they're being paid to go places and do things. They're almost like a fantasy A team, and she's the captain of the ship. Um, I think that might be everybody. I'm gonna have to like look look at my like group photo here if I'm capable of saying words and scrolling simultaneously, which I put the odds of that at fifty fifty. But if I suddenly interrupt myself midway through here to be like, Bleh, I forgot about this person. Uh, it was not intentional. I love them all equally and unconditionally. Um, so let me tell you why I set the story in the Moonshade Isles. Originally, when I got tasked to do this, I wanted to do it as completely new place, completely homebrewed. Like I was fine with it being in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, and I just found my picture of the cover art for issue one. And yeah, that's everybody. I hit them. Look at that. It's almost like I know them or something. Um, I wanted to have it be like somewhere out completely new. I set the Agony of Kairos quite intentionally far away from all the places we know. It was a, in an indeterminate place in the South. Um, the reason why that was is I didn't want to be beholden to 50 years of Forgotten Realms continuity. Because I knew pretty much wherever I put it, uh, if I just looked at the map and I was like, I'm going to put it in those mountains, somebody would be like, um, excuse me, in the 1982 module, we already know that the goblins have overrun that place. Um, I didn't want that at all. Uh, so I was like, I don't want to do Waterdeep. I don't want to do Neverwinter. I don't want to do basically anywhere you've heard of. No, no, no. I don't want to do it in the Underdark. Nothing. Especially because the more iconic the place, not only are you more beholden to the continuity, but you can make less of an impact on it. Like, I can't burn Waterdeep to the ground, for instance. I mean, why ever would I want to burn Waterdeep to the ground? That's just crazy talk. But I know they wouldn't let me. So I was like, let's not even try. So I picked Moonshay because it is uh, still an iconic location that is very close to everywhere else, especially if they're mercenaries on a boat, they can get up and down the coast. Um, I found out after I was quite a ways into this process that the very first Forgotten Realm story ever was actually set in the Moonshay Isles called Dark Walker on Moonshay. Uh, so much so, it actually had been written as a completely different fantasy novel and got essentially um, annexed by um, TSR at the time. They bought it to make it be set in the Forgotten Realms. So, in many ways, we're actually nodding back to the earliest history of this world, uh, somewhat unintentionally. Now, I dove super deep into the lore of this place on purpose because I wanted to just know what had happened and I didn't want to uh, step on any toes because part of the thing with this being a generational story is I had the characters be present for some fairly iconic events in the Forgotten Realms. And I tied it all the way down to specific times in the timeline. Um like so many things, the timeline of the realms can be like kind of vague-ish of like what happened when. But some of the further things back, like there is an, an existing continuity. So I was able to figure out when the characters were born. They've all got birthdays. Uh, I was able to figure out like exactly where they were at certain dates because they had to be present to witness certain events. Uh, but one of the things that was neat about that, as you might recall, I said it was going to tie into next summer's event. And I took characters from some very old and classic Forgotten Realm stories, and I basically made them very old and put them in this one. And I also took some characters that are going to turn up in this summer's event, and I made them very young and put them in this one. So when you're reading these books, I think when you come back after you see some of the things that are coming down the pipeline from Watsy in about the next year or so, 
and you come back and read these books, it's going to be completely clear why I did some of the things that I did and why I mentioned some of the things that I mentioned. Like you'll come back and be like, oh, that was that. And I'll be like, that was that. That was. Yeah. So uh, it's all intentional. I don't do anything at random. If there is a word on the page, it's there on purpose. If there is an image on the on the panel, it is there on purpose. So if you start to think, hmm, I wonder, the answer is probably yes. Yeah, it, it is probably nodding to the thing you think is nodding to. Um, it was nice to be able to hearken back to so much of the old Forgotten Realms continuity, because my hope is that it is going to make people fall more in love with the lore of this world, especially a lot of the stories that were told back in the day by TSR in the old D&D comics or in the old novels. And when you see some of these characters that we've alluded to, it is my sincere hope that people are going to go back and want to read some of these old stories and be like, oh, what did happen? And it also gave me the opportunity to be able to kind of carve my own space out because a lot of these things, like even when you look at the continuity, it's stuff like, yeah, the king died in this year and his two sons went to war over who was going to succeed him. And that's it. That's all that is said about it, because it was just sort of like a footnote where I could come in and I could really take that and I could kind of breathe some life into it. Like, why did the king die? What were the sons like? Uh, was it Colonel Mustard that killed him in the library with the candlestick? Spoiler alert. It was. But, um, yeah, and, and I, I liked really being able to breathe some life into it. And I'll tell you, if I have my way with the stream, what I hope to do, um, this is somewhat still TBD, so don't get mad if when it actually sees the light of day, it's nothing like this at all. But my hope is if the comic is like Lord of the Rings, then the stream is going to be more like Game of Thrones. Uh, I want to be able to show like the death and the depth, not death, paging Dr. Freud, depth of the Moonshade Isles and the situation that is there and the political intrigue and the, and the interesting characters that are all set up in and around there and kind of breathe some life into them. I think that would be very nice to do because like on um, Vampire the Masquerade LA by Night, which is a show I'm on, if you're not familiar, I'm one of the main cast. I play Victor Temple, undisputed Baron of the Valley, uh, yeah, Ventru. And we lean a lot into the lore of not just the world of darkness, but into like the Bloodlines games and stuff. And so I, I know that the audience finds it to be very fulfilling when you see crossover characters like that and you see people pop up in different ways. Uh, and it almost, uh, when you know, it makes you feel like you're kind of in on an inside secret. And when you don't know, it makes you feel like you want to go find out, especially when you see other people nerding out when somebody comes on screen, which is nice. Um, hmm, let me think. I'm kind of... Um, I know this is one of those things that when I'm in the car on the way home, I'm going to be like, oh, my God, why didn't I tell him? Bleh. But um, uh, five issues, like I said, order it. I hope we're going to get to do more. We're probably going to get to do more. Uh, the book ends in such a way that we definitely could do a lot more. Um, I really think it's going to be successful, and I really do. And I don't think it's because of me. I think it's because of Tess. I think it's gorgeous. I think when you walk by and you see it on the bookshelf, you're not going to be able to help but pick it up because it's a stunning what she's been able to do. And when you flip through it, you're going to love it. And I think we've been able to create some characters who are three-dimensional, living, breathing people that you will be able to see yourself in some of them and, quite frankly, give a damn about them and what happens, which I think is important. Um, again, you know, coming at this from a storytelling perspective, I really think you can't overemphasize asking yourself the question of why would anyone care? When you look at your story and the story that you want to tell, it's like, why would anyone care? It's like you might write the dopest story ever about an old woman that walks to the corner and buys groceries and comes home, and then I'll have a resounding, well, but so? For what? You know, now if you manage to layer in the fact that her journey to the grocery store and back is emblematic of the fact that she spent her life of ritual and routine and basically has been living in a circle this entire time and can't tell yesterday from tomorrow. That might be great. You might be making some like greater statement about what it means to be human and exist in a world of both free will and constraint. That might be interesting. Uh, maybe she's secretly going to have been a werewolf. That'd be super interesting, you know. But you you've got to ask you like, why would they care? Because you got to realize when somebody's taking the time to read what you write or listen to you talk. Thank you, by the way. 
uh, they're taking their time to invest in you, and their time is their life. They could be doing literally anything. They could be literally anywhere. They could be eating lunch, taking a nap, hanging out with friends, and they're choosing to invest it in you. And that is a sacred trust. Do not underestimate that and do not take it for granted. Don't waste people's time. Do your best every time. Make every single thing you create the best that you can make it. Make it as must-see TV as you can. Uh, The reality of storytelling and the reality of art is some things are going to be better than others, and some days are going to be better than others, and that's cool, but at least do your best. Um, let me rattle off some general like writing advice type things, because I love nerding out about these kinds of things. This is one advantage of Tess having not been here, even though I love her dearly, I get to nerd out about writing and storytelling. Uh, research. Research. If you're going to tell a story that is set in a place that exists, find out as much as you can about that place so that you can portray it uh, accurately. Um, Bring as much reality into what you do, no matter how fantastic it is. And I don't mean that everything has to be gritty and down to earth. I'm a big fan of high fantasy. I'm a fan of dragons and fireballs and stopping time. But the more hooks of reality you have in it are the more places where people can kind of like bring, get further into that world because you give them a handhold of something they can identify with. Like I just wrote a screenplay that was set in World War II and a lot of the battles, I researched real battles and real things that had happened. And those are the the fictional battles that they get into, especially battles where something crazy happened. Because when you see it and you're going to be like, well, that's not possible. That's stupid storytelling. I can be like, no, that actually happened. That one dude with a machine gun really did hold off that entire army for 48 hours. That was real. Um, I wrote a different screenplay that was about soldiers coming back from war that were wrestling with PTSD. I've never served in the military. I don't know what it's like to go to battle. I don't know what it's like to have to wrestle with PTSD. And I didn't want to be in a position where I was just kind of monologuing about what I thought it must be like. So I researched interviews with soldiers and vets and people that were returning home where they talk about what it's like. And so in the screenplay, most of the overt declarative statements about what it's like to be home are slightly adjusted, uh, for respect's sake, uh, direct quotes from people who've lived it. So, again, once it's said, if somebody comes at me and is like, well, I don't agree with this thing that you said here, especially because you've never been to war, I can say, well, you're absolutely right, except the person that said it has. So, I don't know what to tell you there. Um, If you're writing characters that are different from you, from a different uh, religion or a different part of the world or different sexual orientation or speak a different language or whatever, uh, find some of those people and bounce it off of them and ask. It's like, does this seem legit to you? And honestly, try and bounce it off of like three to five people because people have different tastes. So you might write something and a person tells you that is offensive when maybe they've got thin skin or they might tell you that it's not offensive and they've just got really thick skin. You know, you never know. Um, but at least like kind of get some feedback from the people that you're trying to represent to make sure that you're hitting the note right. Um, I won't say that you have to feel like you can't tell stories that aren't your stories. Uh, I mean, again, as as a male, uh, I, I write female and, and non-binary characters and young and old and all of these things um, that are that have experiences that are not my experiences, but I just try and do it to the best of my ability with the, the most respect possible. Um, I think it's an uh, unnecessary constraint to say to yourself that, you know, for instance, hypothetically, because I'm a white male, I cannot create a black female character. That's not true. But do bounce it off of some black females just to make sure, because you're going to find out the hard way if you've, if you've missed the mark, you know? <laughs> um, uh, I think the easiest way to combat writer's block is to have multiple projects. Have lots of things going. Um, usually, I don't have a problem with writer's block, especially if it's something that I enjoy. But earlier this year, for the first time, I just hit just like an inky black wall. Like I would try and turn on my mind's eye theater, and man, it just was not there. Uh, I personally, my method of procrastination is I do other stuff. I try to be productive in other ways. That's how I go. Uh, but if you've got a couple of different stories, let's say two or three that you're picking at, um, 
you're going to feel inspired by one of them. So, it might not be working with the vampire story today. Maybe it is working with the fantasy story. Oh, it's not working with the fantasy story. Maybe it's working with the sci-fi story. Um, I do say, try and do something no matter what. Don't ever just have a day go by that you don't write anything. Because you got to realize, if you write just a thousand words a day, which is basically four double space pages, um, in two months, you got a short novel. Um, you know, do NaNoWriMo, by the way, National Novel Writing Month. You have to squeeze out a novel in one month. But I mean, you can reasonably do it in a two or three. Uh, slow and Steady really does win the race. I, I would say, as I'm trying to wind this up now, um, this is more of a general life thing. Just figure out what you want and figure out what you're trying to accomplish and figure out why you're trying to accomplish it, accomplish it and do something towards it every single day. If it's just research, if it's sending an email, if it's if it's doing a little bit of online networking and interacting with people, uh, meet people, get out there, get your name out there, let people know who you are. If you like someone's art and appreciate them and appreciate what they do, tell them. I hear this all the time where it's like, oh, I really love that person's art, but I don't want to bother them. You're not bothering them, man. I mean, like maybe if they're sitting in a restaurant with their family and they're in the middle of shoveling food in their mouth, you might be bothering them at that exact second. But hitting somebody up on Twitter to be like, I just want you to know I love your performance and I love the stories that you tell. Uh, 100% of people want to hear that because... I mean, a lot of times artists are plagued with self-doubt, and even though I told you earlier, I'm not. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should be. You tell me after these books come out. But even so, I love hearing a good hustle. Everybody loves hearing a good hustle. And I'm going to tell you this last thing, and I'm going to wind this up. Keep me posted. Tag me in whatever you create. Tag me in the stories that you want to write. If you're embarrassed or you don't know how to start, my DMs are open. Hit me up, and I will help you and give you some advice. Um, whatever it is that is in your mind and in your heart, that story that you just keep coming back to when you drift off, um, tell it. Uh, as you consume art, pay attention to what you like and what you don't like, and try and figure out why that is. What is it about that story that really resonated with you? What is it about that story that didn't resonate with you? And how can you improve upon it? Constantly be learning, constantly be building up your toolbox, constantly been creating, and I promise you, your time will come. And I stood up to dramatically drop the mic and I can't because it's like bolted in because this is a really nice studio that Forever Dog has got. But I want you to imagine that I just dropped the mic and stormed off because I'm out. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever.